0: Hello! Welcome to the Fantastic Fiction and KGB Reading Series. Fantastic Fiction is a monthly speculative fiction reading series held on the third Wednesday of every month, hosted by Ellen Datlow and me, Matthew Kressel. We spotlight well-known and -and up-and-coming science fiction, fantasy, and horror authors, and admission is always free. We publish a monthly podcast and video so people who can't attend the in-person event can still enjoy the readings. If you'd like to support the series, you can donate at kgbfantasticfiction.org slash support. Anyway, on to the show.
1: In a minute, myself, hi. Welcome to Fantastic Fiction at KGB. Um, I'm sure that most of you know about how this has been going on at least 20 years, and we moved recently in the last several months from the third Wednesday of the month to the second Wednesday of the month. And I'm glad that many people followed us, and then there are a lot of new people, too. Um, over the next few months, we have readers who are going to be February 8th, Marie Vibert and Jeffrey Ford. March 8th, Scott Lynch and Elizabeth Baer. April 17th, Peng Shepherd and Paul Park. May 10th, John Langan and Paul Tremblay. June 14th, Nathan Ballingrood and Dale Bailey, <coughs> Excuse me. July 12th, Michael Cisco and David Surface, and then after that we have, um, over the next few months, Steve Berman, Livia Llewellyn, and Robert Levy. So we've got some really good readers coming up. But tonight, have I forgotten anything? I, you can, anything I've forgotten you can sure. mention during halftime. Oh, and Chris has some books to sell. If you want to buy his books at the intermission, we're going to take a 15-minute or 10-minute or 15-minute intermission where you can buy drinks and you can buy Chris's books and have him sign them for you and just hang out some more. But our first reader now is A.T. Greenblatt, who is a Nebula Award-winning short story writer. Her stories and essays have appeared in Slate, Tour.com, Uncanny, and many other places. She's been a finalist for the Hugo, the Locust, the Sturgeon Award, and the WSFS Award. By day, she is a systems engineer and lives in Brooklyn. Please welcome Elisa. <laughs>
2: Is that good yes hi everyone. thanks so much for coming um, I'm so excited to see you all here uh, I don't have a book to sell yet but uh if you'd like to support my work, um, please consider subscribing to one of the Shushuae magazines. Um magazines they're kind of the lifeblood of science fiction and fantasy as well a lot of new writers um, get their start so and and uh with the uh, Amazon changing their subscription, and, um, sorry, the Twitter kind of imploding, they've been really struggling a little bit, so, if you have 10 or $20, pitch it to, uh, Denise's guys on Candy, Clocks World, Strange Horizons, or, uh, um, Asimov's analog, so it helps writers like me, and, yeah, so anyway, um, this is actually, just got published in Uncanny Magazine last week, and it's called Way, Station City, and I'm going to be part of it for you. I'm not going to get through it all, but uh, if you'd like to read the rest of it, you can find that online. All right, here we go. Way, Station City. I was finishing the last of my night with coffee when the 1970 twins approached my table and asked me to witness the disappearance. It was not unusual, it was not an unusual request at Cafe Lemonade, being the locale of patrons that dream too much and ate too little. I, being its longest and oldest patron, had heard and witnessed this request many times. Pardon me, the tall twin said. Are you Madame Hexler? Her voice was soft but her gaze was direct. Besides her, her brother, a head shorter and shorter still by a slashed posture, placed his hands in his pockets. They both had lovely ebony skin and black, cloud-like hair that surrounded their heads like a halo. Her shirt was a cheerful yellow knit and there was a bright kerchief around her neck. His was a white, synthetic with a wide, deep collar edged with red. They wore tight-fitting plants of blue diamond that fled at the bottom. I'm told these are called jeans. They were likely twins, but the mannerisms, the way they hit, shared a space, betrayed a closeness. Later, I will learn their names, Daphne and Claude. I am, I said. The twins exchanged a look, clawed and held sharply, and said, Ma'am, we'd like to make a request. We're going to leave the city. One of the beautiful things about Café Laminate was it, was it was always alive, no matter the hour. There were forever patrons in armchairs and on bar stools, arguing, drinking, and complaining, the air was perpetually smelled of sweet-flavored tobacco and harsh, cheap cigarettes. All the whispers of smoke exhaled. Even in those rare moments, when there was but one customer, Anton, the proprietor, busied himself with some task loudly to keep the silence at bay. In silence, we began to doubt ourselves. Claude had been not been speaking loudly But when he voiced, we're going to leave the city, the cheerful gin of the cafe seemed to grow distant and cold, like a a wind that whips through the window curtain, revealing a dark and unknowable world. Some of the patrons turned and stared at the twins, some of the patrons turned and stared at anything but my little table in the corner, and the people gathered around it. And of all hushness, the twins exchanged another look, a nervous one. I began to answer, but Anton appeared at my elbow, then, refilling my coffee, my cup of fresh coffee. Running low, I see, he said. Never, I said, and Anton smiled. Are you certain you want to leave, Anton asked, the twins. Is the city so bad? The city is lovely, Daphne said. We just don't fit in anymore. Anton raised an eyebrow. Aside from the like, likeness and mood and mindset, the patrons of the cafe were as varied as the timelines they came from. From the vantage point of the corner table, we could see customers from the 1920s New York, early 2000s Tokyo, 1940s Mexico City, and a dozen others with a mix of different clothes, and hairstyles from many different times and places. When each specimen was unique, it was not possible to stand out at Cafe Laminate. Well, Daphne amended, we say doesn't feel like home anymore. We're changing, Claude added softly. Ah, uh, Anton said, and what if disappearing is worse than changing? Daphne raised her head and met his eyes directly. And what if fear is the only reason we stay? Anton shrugged. They say your accounts are truthful, she continued, turning to me and nodding at the notebook before me, craning her neck slightly to make out the words. I closed it. Yes, I said. We record us? Perhaps. Perhaps. It's something interesting to record, I said, and the trends relaxed some, and did not consider, perhaps, how many stories are not worth telling. I can show you the way, but it's not the same thing. It's dangerous to go into the Lower City, Anton interjected. Forge, even. Would you rather not stay, have some coffee or wine, perhaps something stronger, on the house? Stealthily, Sally. The cafe grew noisy again. The twins had barely considered before saying no thank you and they were in near unison. Anton sighed. Drinkers were calling him from the bar-, bar stools. Don't endanger my favorite customer, he said, giving my shoulder a small squeeze. In my ear, he leaned down and whispered, I'll tell McKellar. I'll let McKellar know. Before hurrying away to the bar, scolding the drinkers, making them laugh. We can pay you," said Daphne. "I don't need it," I said, standing. Though you might, depending on where you end up. The twins fidgeted. They wanted to argue, but you can sit on my tab. Daphne nodded, and sh- strode over to the Claude, to the bar. Claude helped me with my jacket. I drained my coffee in one gulp. Nights of disappearances were always cold and long. Pardon me for being direct, said Claude. But if you don't want the money, what do you want? I tucked my notebook and pen into my coat pocket, alongside the envelope that was already there. Answers, I said. It was nearly midnight when we left Cafe Lemonade, and the city was wearing its best nightgown. Under the eaves of the shops and on the corners there were Small gatherings of people talking or laughing, the conversations weaving in and out of the five different languages, the clothes and hair, a mishmash of like, a mishmash of sarongs, bound downs, overalls and saris, bobs and long intricate beards. true Way Station citizens. The stone paved roofs glistened after a sun shower and the soft electric light street lamps illuminated the ground, but only hinted at the buildings on either side, short and tall, wooden or stone or bamboo in construction, and eclectic and mismatched as a people. As we moved to the main boulevard, the smell of rain and flowers blooming in the terrace above the shops haunted our steps. Waystation City was lovely, but it was this late-night beauty that I loved best. The twins and I walked to the nearest tram stop and waited. On a nearby streetlight hung a poster that read, Avoid the lowest city. It's not worth the risk. Wait. Claude read it quickly and turned away. Daphne ignored it, pointedly staring at the tracks. In the cool, damp night, the twins stood out with their bright shirts and bell bottom jeans looking like fresh arrivals to the cities, one still searching for answers. Which was true, though the questions tonight would be the last they asked of this place. Tell me your story, I said. The twins looked startled, as if they forgot I was beside them. Why? asked Daphne. You can't Understand the ending without knowing the beginning. Jesus, Daph, said Claude. Haven't you read her articles? Daph flushed. Fushed. Trams you. The tram car approached, bright blue, lit up, merrily with strings of lights, announcing its survival with a tinkling of bells. We boarded. Daphne held out city-minted coins for tokens. End the line, please, she said to the conductor. The conductor hesitated. There was only one reason travelers took a late-night tram to the edge of the city. He started to twins with some trepidation, taking them in. T- Daphne's determined stance, Claude's gaze, that was fixed on some spot in the ceiling. When he turned to me, there was recognition in his eyes. For a moment, I thought the conductor was going to refuse us passage. Instead, he gave me a small nod and accepted Daphne's money. I knew then that one day, soon, he would ask me to witness his disappear- disappearance too. That is, if I still was in Waystation City. The tram's bell rang and his engines thrown as it shifted gears. Wait! A voice cried out. The voice was followed quickly by a tall, <coughs> lanky figure springing onto the tram. The latecomer wore a bespoke suit and a trilby, with short-cropped hair and polished shoes. With one smooth motion, they handed their fare to the conductor and took a seat next to me. "'Good to see you too, Gertie,' they said, after a moment of silence. That was when I realized it was McCullough. "'You cut your hair,' I said. "'You've got new clothes,' she replied. I was wearing a pair of trousers and a feminine cut.' which felt strange after a lifetime of skirts, but also thrilling. One of the million little changes I adopted since coming to the city, many of which would have horrified my younger self. You were doing well, she said. observed. Not as well as you, I said. McCullough beamed. Ah, new victims, Gertie, she said, turning to the twins. They were just about to tell me their story. I said, and then to the wide-eyed twins explained, please excuse McKellar. She's an old friend and knows the lower city better than anyone. Oh, I didn't miss the good part, exclaimed McKellar, taking off her hat and stretching out her long legs, settling in. The twins stared at us from across the trams, their hands instinctively finding one another's. What do you want to know? asked hesitantly. Everything I said. What am I doing with my time? <laughs> okay. <laughs> and I lost my thought. I apologize. Okay, here we go. <laughs> the soft click click clack of the tram with a steady heartbeat as the twins the story. Claude began, and t- Daphne took up the tale when he fa- faltered, trading it back and forth when it- she ran out of words. Michaela listened, with a hat folded on her stomach, her olive skin hands fo- folded neatly on it. I opened my notebook and began to transcribe. Tonight, I would w- witness the twins' story, whatever ending, and if it was worth telling, I was sent it to my editor at the paper in the morning. Despite the signs and warnings, it seemed everyone in this peculiar city was hungry for stories of disappeared I provided. We don't know how we came to West Asian City, began Claude. Not exactly, at least. It had been a late night in the, when the 1970 Twins arrived at the city. They began the evening with reggae at the First Ace, Four Ace Club before a friend suggested checking out the marquee. It was June 1977, and the, and the Irish punk band was playing the Boomtown Town Rats. Lanky, untried, captivating, and full of rage. The t- Twins didn't drink much that night. They didn't have more than one or two pulls of a joint. They didn't have the luxury of being anything less than sharp and aware. Violence and hatred against immigrants being rampant. After the show, they took the tube home, surrounded by friends, talking and laughing, and lingering close, keeping an eye on other passengers, too. One by one, the friends got off on other stops, and they were the last left on the empty car. They noticed nothing strange in those last part of the trip, not even in hindsight. And yet, when they emerged from the tube station... They did not find themselves in Brixton, a few streets from the flat they shared with a mother and two siblings. The city they found themselves in was not the one they began in, and it was nearly dawn. Later they wouldn't learn its name, the way station. The air was cold as it transversed from the, to the street, and dread settled in the, within them. It had been a mild summer night when they left when they had left the tube. Now there were snowflakes floating around them, clinging to their eyelashes. They cast about, panicked, as they realized the strangeness of their surroundings. The streets were lined with buildings from a dozen different centuries, all looking impossibly new. There were flowers blooming in the terraces amidst the cold, coldest coldness of winter. They learned quickly that Waste Station City was full of kind Samaritans. That the woman who helped them off the street and to the city's resource center had also arrived under mysterious circumstances. That all the city citizens came from a different place at a different time unexpectedly. The woman, the worker at the resources center, everyone they met in the years that followed Told them they were they were lucky to have each other, to be siblings in this unexpected limbo. Usually, new citizens arrived alone. The twins were given housing, a spacious apartment, not too far away from the city parks. They were given jobs. Daphne working with the distribution of shipments coming in from the river ferries. She was always quick with numbers. And Claude, with a tailor shop. He had a Always had a good eye for fabrics. I was clever with his hands. They were welcomed and accepted. They were grateful, but homesick for their friends and families, worried about the rising fascism in Britain and the state of the anti-racist protest they were part of. They begged for directions home, but the caseworker shook his head sadly and told him to wait. That one day, they would find a ticket, or a letter, or a map with instructions on how to leave the city, and return to their own time and place. Every one a station did, eventually. So, they waited. But always, the 1970s called them home, and they held on to every piece they could. They were going to be patient, really, for the ticket, map. But one morning, a week ago, Daphne woke up and couldn't remember any of the lyrics or if she loved. Claude couldn't remember the faces of his mates or the street names around their home. They could no longer recall the fury and the dreams that compelled them to go to rallies in the London streets. The life before Waystation City felt like a worn and faded dream. We're losing ourselves here, Claude said, putting his head in his hands. We can't stay, Daphne said fiercely. We were fighting for something, at home. And here, here, we're just waiting. Claude finished. Besides me and Michaela's side, running a hand through her black, shorn hair, I closed my notebook. And then i argue. And that's where I'm going to leave you. so much and you can read the rest of it and OK. So it just went up last
1: week?
2: Yeah, it just went up last week.
1: Thank you. We're going to take a break for about 10 minutes, have a drink, go to the bathroom, talk to each other, come and get Christopher to sign some books. I'll be
3: back. All right. Welcome back. So, if this is your first time here, we're at uh, Fantastic Fiction KGB Reading Series. My name's Matt Kressel. I co-host the series with Ellen Datlow. We are the second Wednesday of every month. Thank you all for coming. Um, if... Uh, You don't know. It's always free. We never charge a cover. All we ask is that you buy a drink, hard or soft, tip your bartender. Mary's working hard to keep you hydrated, so please buy a drink uh, if you can. Um, I'm excited. Ellen did all the the announcements that I usually do, uh, so I'm at a loss for words, but... You can give the history. I'm not going to give the history, but... uh, we had a great 2022 and we're really excited to be here for a new year. We got a bunch of great readers lined up, as, as Ellen mentioned. Um, so uh, Elisa, A.T. Greenblatt, love the reading, by the way. Um, as, as she said, uh, she doesn't have any books for sale, but please, if you can, uh, support some of the online fiction magazines. That story was in Uncanny, this month's Uncanny, so please check that out. And print magazines too, not just online, um, because it's a really difficult time right now for for small uh, press and medium large press, all publishing really. Uh, that it's just a, it's a difficult time. So if you can if you can support the magazines, the the, the industry, you keep uh, stuff like you know this series going. So. Um, Our next reader is Christopher M. Savasco. Uh, I've known Chris for a long time. I don't know how many years, but it's got to be close to to two decades. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I remember him and his uh, posse. We used to call it the JJA posse. So if you know John Joseph Adams, who uh, uh, edits a couple online magazines, uh, used to sit over there with his his posse. It was was, uh, Chris and and. who was there, Andrea and uh, Desiree Naboscovich and, and uh, Matt. Matt and Jordan London and, and other, Dave other folks, Dave Kirtley, Dave Kirtley and Dad. Doug Cohen, Definitely. you're like, who the hell are they? Who the fuck is he talking about? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I'm just having a nostalgia moment. I'm just having a nostalgia moment. No, all I'm saying is he moved away and I see his face once a week. We have a nightly d game and he ran an amazing campaign. Now I'm in a different campaign. Anyway, (laughs) going on tangents all over the place tonight. What the hell are you talking about, Matt? Um, I'm just saying it's really great that he's back. That's what I'm saying. So I'm really happy to have him here and read for us tonight, Um, and he has books for sale. So uh, Christopher M. Savasco's debut novel, Beheld, Godiva's Story, Lethe Press, was released in April 2022. His stories have appeared in such venues as Beneath Ceaseless Skies, Black Static, and Shades of Blue and Gray, Ghosts of the Civil War from Prime Books. After 10 years in Brooklyn, Chris and his wife moved to Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, where they live with their two children, and, this is an addendum to his bio, recently won the bronze medal in the England, Ireland, Scotland category in the Historical Fiction Company's Book of the Year Awards. So congratulations on that, Chris. Here's Christopher M. Thank you. Yeah, I there are no break in
4: my neck. Can you get it? Yeah. All right. Well, yeah, it's great to be back here. Um, as Matt said, I used to come here uh, basically every month for about a decade. Um, but it's super exciting to be back here and to see old faces and new faces. And so thanks so much, Matt and Ellen, for inviting me back. Um, uh, I am going to read, actually, the prologue from Beheld Godiva's story tonight. Um, it is uh, sort of a darkly twisted psychological thriller with a few um, sort of subtle fantasy elements woven in that kind of explores and reexamines the, uh, the legend of Lady Godiva um, riding naked through the town of Coventry. Um, And so, you know, Lady Godiva was actually a real living, uh, you know, very powerful noblewoman in the 11th century in Anglo-Saxon England. But the the legend that we, you know, most people, if they know anything about Lady Godiva, they know this legend um, about, uh, you know, basically the legend is that she uh, wanted to relieve the town of Coventry from this burdensome tax, and she went to her husband, Earl Leofric, Uh, of Mercia and asked him to do this, and Leofric responded very flippantly to her in the legend, "Uh, I'll do that the day that you ride naked through the town square. Basically meaning never, because he couldn't imagine she would do that. But she calls his bluff, and the the, the tax gets struck down. Um, You know, this is, I call it a legend because it's apocryphal, it almost certainly never happened, unfortunately, the naked ride. Um, it's, uh, you know, it, for no other reason because it doesn't appear in print until about a hundred years after she lived. Um, and I, I will, before I start reading, the other interesting thing I'll just note is that the other very famous figure from the legend was not actually added in to the legend until the 17th century, when um, most of the townsfolk covered their eyes to spare her the shame of being seen naked. One individual named Thomas peeks out from behind the shutters at her and is immediately struck blind by God. And that's how we get the modern term peeping Tom. So um, in any event, uh, Beheld is sort of my attempt to strip away some of the anachronisms from the the legend and restore it to its sort of 11th century historical context um, and and kind of examine a little bit more about the woman behind the legend. So I'm going to read the prologue. Should be just about the right length. Uh, So, Coventry, 11th October, 1028. Oh, and by the way, I'll say, I use the Old English uh, spelling and pronunciation of Godiva, so uh, it's Godgifu. Godgifu slumped to her knees, but for the nun's strong arms beneath her own, she would have fallen on her belly among the floor's dusky rushes. I can't die like this, weak and broken, she breathed or thought she did. The nun made no response, so maybe Godgifu had only thought it without giving it voice. Am I dead already? My soul gone from my wracked flesh? But that couldn't be true either. Why then would she still know such pain? Don't, she tried again. Don't think of me this way after. It sounded little more than a whisper, weak and forlorn. Godgifu closed her eyes and wept. Though she had never been one of those great folk whose faring through the earthly kingdom left ripples in her wake, she had nonetheless always taken pride in holding steady on the oar, never flinching, no matter what storms or narrowness had beset her eighteen years. Now her weird, the lot God willed for her, had brought her body low and she wanted to go into the hereafter with head high. Instead, she wavered, she shied, and somehow that was the hardest of it all. "'Just a little farther,' Sister Anne fled grunted behind her, "'the nun's rosary dangling over one of Godgifu's ears to trail across her mouth. "'Godgifu kissed the the beads with cracked lips "'and stepped toward the pillows and tangled, sweat-soaked bedclothes. "'And there was Rue, the old hound that had been her father's best-loved hunter. "'Godgifu reached for him, and the hound lifted his long muzzle "'from among the crumpled bedding, tongue lolling happily.'" "'How could I have forgotten him?' she asked. "'Forgotten who?' the nun asked, helping to lift her. "'But of course Ru had come. "'When it had been his time to die all those years ago, "'they'd found the hound curled up in Godgifu's own bed. "'Now he was back, waiting. "'Dull pain bloomed in her knee "'as she bashed it against the carved board beneath the bed cove. "'She whimpered as she threw herself at last "'into the wall's hollow, wilting. "'Her knee would be bruised.' But that ache was a drop in the flood, filling her side and back, spreading into her groin like hellfire. Where had Rue gone? She needed to borrow his old strength, but the bed was empty, only her and the pain. It was the worst pain Gagyufu had ever known, worse even than what she recalled of her wedding night not so very long ago. Five years? It seemed a longer, untold span. That night had likewise been soon after the harvest, mild and warm, even as this night was cold and foggy. She'd been a little girl then, not yet ready for the wedding bed. Now, she was a woman grown, but she felt again like that callow, wide-eyed bride. Shadows moved about in the house's eaves, stalking, closing in. This is it, she thought. Something almost like laughter making her tremble. All I've lived for. To watch mother and father die, see my marriage crumble, bear no children, know no love but the love of Christ and Mary ever maiden? She wondered why God had bothered to give her breath. A chill crept in under godgifu's drenched linen shift, and she clambered to draw the bedclothes fast. The sheets smelled of the gall she'd been heaving up, of the water that had leaked out while her gut clenched, but she was beyond caring about such things. Anflit hurried to help, and once she was settled back, pushed something into Godgifu's hand. For now, Godgifu lacked the strength even to look to see what she held. A cow lowed outside, a gloomy sound. Cows seemed ever mournful to her, and she tried to call to mind if she'd ever seen a happy one. Wan light leaped past the room's dark beams through a spot of roof thatch wanting mending. Daytime, then, not night at all. It all felt the same poor cows. She suddenly wanted to weep over that frayed bit of thatch. This house was one of eight she owned across the Midlands, but like most of them, she'd hardly spent any time there. When she was gone, who would be left to see to the roof's mending or milk the cows? Who would live here? Some hairy thane I've never met, Danish or English. Did it matter which? Blinking away, unshed tears, she looked at last and saw a little silver-topped glass flask in her hand. Something dark was pressed within. I brought it for you, dearie, the nun whispered. A lock of St. Osber's hair. Ask her to speed your prayers to Christ the Healer, and she'll do what she may. Godgifu closed her fingers about the relic. She wished she had the strength to smile, thanks. It was a sundry thing indeed for the old sister to have brought this from where Godgifu knew they kept it in one of Coventry's little minster churches, alongside a bigger chest holding the saint's head. Abbas Osber died a martyr when Knut's Danish raiders sacked her abbey. Godgifu had been a wee child then, still full of hope. Now Knut himself was king of Denmark and England both, and Godgifu... "'the widow of one of the raiders he'd set up "'as Earl of the Gloucester-Mercians. "'Who'd have guessed I'd end up dying here "'in Coventry of all "'How long have I been here?' she asked. "'Sister Anfled sighed. "'More'n a week, dear. "'I was to be at the Earl's Feast now,' Godgifu whispered, "'and again Aenflid seemed not to understand. "'She drew a deeper breath. "'The ache had abated somewhat at last.' She knew she should find much-needed sleep, but she wanted talk of anything and nothing. There would soon be time enough for stillness everlasting. This Leofric, the Mercians' new earl, he's been given sway over Gloucestershire too. My dead husband's spot, I wonder, will he be any good? Oh, I'm sure the king would not have named him elsewise, Hanflet answered, wiping Goddiff's brow with a soft cloth. Godyfu let her eyes close for a spell. King Knud must have thought my husband would make a good earl, too, but that all went to hell. The sister's rubbings had begun to irk her, and Godyfu wanted to bat her hand away, but could only cling to the cloth with shaking fingers. No matter. I shan't live to find out. Andlet made a shushing sound. Pray to Osbor as I bid you. Christ will hear God's truth. She looked back at the relic in her other hand and was ashamed. I will pray. She wrapped both hands about it and sought the right words. I don't want to die. Straightforward enough, she supposed. When Anflid rose to leave, Godgifu called out, Stay, please, I I don't want to be alone. If, if... Anflid leaned back against the cove, her... Smile coming as easy as always, but Godgifu knew the woman must be exhausted. She'd hardly left her side since the illness first gripped her, and Godgifu knew she should let her rest, but couldn't bear the thought of death bundling her off while she lay alone in the still room. If you'd like to go to Newark to be with your own people, I'm sure a wagon could be... No, Godgifu answered, more loudly than she'd wanted to, making Anflid flinch. Thank you, but no... Newer colds only bad memories. Don't think about it. But as ever, she couldn't stop herself. She was 12 again. Word had come of her father's death. She was walking into the barn, calling for mother. First, she found the piebald mare and hadn't understood the dark, sticky stains over its withers. Then she looked up, the rope, her mother's eyes bulging above a torn neck, A single red drop fell upon Godgifu's cheek. The pain came back all at once in a rippling wave, pushing out and down from her back. Christ in heaven! She folded over, retching on herself, bringing up what little broth she'd managed to keep down earlier. Her body tightened, then slackened in the lull between waves. She wiped at the yellow-green stains on her shift, careful not to get any on the relic. Here, love, let me. Ian fled tugged the shift bringing it up and over her head with one deft pull. Your handmaid has a fresh one drying in the yard for you. Just wrap these about you until I'm back. Godgifu gripped the sheets, shivering at the chill, but no sooner did she cover herself than the bedclothes grew stifling. A fire burned and pounded at her eyes and forehead. She threw off the sheets and sat naked, crouched over her shrunken belly. Anflit was back with the clean shift, but Godgifu waved it away. Rub my back again, just here. She reached down to mark a spot between ribs and hip. But when the good sister touched her, it ended up being too painful, and she shied away. Just talk to me uh, about anything. Somehow the talking got her through the worst of the ache, which already lessened somewhat again, coming as it did, like the tides ebb and flow. Anne flit sighed. So, not Newark. Maybe Sirin then? Your own bed? But Sirin had never truly felt like home to her, no more than it had ever been her husband's. She shook her head, then met Anne gaze. The woman had a kindly cast. Ruddy cheeks, smiling eyes, big horse teeth that came out over her lower lip when her mouth was at rest. For a moment it looked as though her cheeks glowed, but Godkefu reckoned that was only a fever trick. Do you know? I only lay with my husband once. Maybe the fever also made her speak of things that had never before passed her lips. Maybe she merely thought to find some shrift for her misfarings. Annflid looked down. My lady, it's not for me to know. Only the once, she went on. On the night of our wedding. So none could ever say the betrothal hadn't been fulfilled. Eilifer would not even have done it then. He was in truth a kind man, a kind Danishman, if such a thing could be among their murderous lot. Mild of heart. He feared he might do me some harm, young as I was, still twelve at the time. Annflid clucked her tongue do you know what he had me do ever after? I'm sure it's not something, Inflid marked a cross upon herself. Doings between wear and wife are none of my, I, she started and then trailed off. Inflid oh, was right. How could she speak of such a thing? Sister, will I meet my husband again in the hereafter? Must I be with him again? There were a few worse things she could think of. But Anflid misunderstood. Nodding and smiling, the nun spoke words that filled Godgifu with dread. If he was a good man, as you say, then he awaits you in heaven. A sort of growl came unbidden to Godgifu's lips. Better I seek hell. Anflid crossed herself again and sputtered in bewilderment. Should I tell her? Tell her of it all? The room grew wholly still but for Godgifu's own rasping breath. Outside, the cow had stopped lowing. She felt her last strength draining away. Time ran short, she knew it, and she wanted nothing so much as to tell this woman, half a stranger, as much as she could so she'd leave some shade to linger after her passing. It was a wild needful drive to speak before the gathered shadows, angels or devils, stilled her tongue with their black peering eyes. She saw them, eyes from the past, staring now from her sick room's shadows, They were here in Coventry, metting her worth, damning her. The words almost fell from Godgafu's lips, but she choked them back. There are some things not fit to speak of, even on my deathbed. Tears spilled from her burning eyes. When a sob came, it hurt her belly, and she retched again, this time bringing nothing up. Anflid put arms about her, shushing Godgifu felt awful for having shamed the good woman by even hinting at her sorry tale. I should have taken it all with me. She must have slept, then, for a time. For when a knock sounded upon the little house's front wall, she started awake in the nun's arms, still clutching St. Osborne's relic. Ian slumbered, too, and Godgifu had to nudge her. The good sister had barely flung a sheet over Godgifu's nakedness when the old priest from rickety St. Michael's tottered in, "'Blessings upon you!' The, pre- "'the gray hair said, and then, "'Christ, what a stink!' <laughs> G- "'Godgifu, you know Father Olfa. Ian Flitt said. "'You bid me send for him.' "'Had she?' But "'Yes,' Godgifu said. "'Thank you.' "'Behind the man's robes, a young boy lurked, "'the one Ian Flitt had sent to find the priest. "'The boy stared at Godgifu with wide blue eyes, unblinking. "'His gaze briefly made her forget why she'd asked for the priest.' The seed of pain grew again in her belly, and she knew she had little time before it bloomed into something that stole her wits. The chrism and the rites, Father Opho, but first, I'd ask you to bear witness to a gift. My lands, she stopped, gritted her teeth, pushed away the fire with all her will. My lands at barking, it was my thought to make a bequest of them to the monks at Ely. I beg you to see it's done. Maybe this is why God calls me now to his side, so I might give away all I have to his church." Had the ache not begun to overwhelm her, she might have said more, given away everything. But there was no time. She cried out, gripped the sheets so her nails tore through them. The priest nodded, swearing to see it done. He smeared her forehead with holy chrism. Then he lifted one edge of the sheet to do the same on the balls of her feet, mouthing blessings as he did so. His cast came from the shadows above her, lit by a lone bedside candle, every crease in his skin a deep crack in which the darkness pooled. He put a hand, all made from bony knuckles, atop her head. May the Lord God forgive you your sins, child. From his robes he brought forth the bread of Christ's body. He put it before her shaking lips, and she opened them just enough to take a small bite. It took all her strength to make herself swallow, but once she'd done so, she felt God's holy gift overtaking her. May the Lord Christ lead you on your way to life everlasting. The words rattled in her ears. Through a red fog, she heard the priest ask the nun to let him see her piss. Godgifu pulled the bedclothes more tightly against her nakedness, bewildered. Inflid lifted a bowl Godgifu had filled earlier with brownish-pink water. The surface streaked with yellow rot. The monk smelled it. "'Brew some yarrow and make her drink it all down,' he told her caretaker. He made the mark of the cross over her one last time, thanked her for her gift to Ile, and turned to go. Gagyafu grasped at the darkness, seeking Anflid. She felt the woman's hand in her own and pulled herself upright. "'I'm going to be sick!' when she was done heaving. She was on her hands and knees in the bed, shivering, staring down at the bits of holy bread spattered with gore. She tried moving from bed to floor. She found herself looking into the eyes of the little boy who stood alongside the bed cove. Sweet God, Amflit, get him out of here. He should not see such ugliness. Amflit drew him away, but the lad reached out to lay fingertips on the back of Godgifu's neck. He leaned in to whisper, lips brushing her ear. Brother Beoc says all who have faith are fair in the eyes of God. Only sin is ugly. Then he melted into the darkness. So swiftly, Gargifu wondered if he had ever been there. She wept, great racking sobs, tears when she'd thought she had none left. The glass holding the saint's hair was smooth in her hand and she gripped it all the tighter. I want to live. Let me live and I will be a better Christian. Help me, St. Osborne, and I give my oath to build the Benedictines an Abbey Church to house your relics an Abbey more beautiful than any other with my own hands, my own pennies, All I have will be yours. All that. A new pain blinded her, stealing thought. She lost hold of the relic. It fell shattering against the floor. My life is yours, St. Osborne, now and for the rest of my days. Sleep's blissful nothingness washed over her, a freedom at last from the fire. And that's the prologue. And I'll just end by saying, giving you all a spoiler alert, she doesn't actually die, or there there would be no book otherwise. (laughs) So it picks up uh, 13 years later in chapter one when she's a woman married to Earl Leofric, and uh, things go uh, both uphill and downhill from there.
3: (laughs) Thank you, Chris. That was great. Thank you, Lisa, That was great. And, uh, Chris has some books for sale, and at least you can read the rest of that story on Uncanny. Uh, Stick around, have a drink at the bar, and we will see you next month. Thank you very much.
0: You've been listening to the Fantastic Fiction at KGB Reading Series. Check out our website at kgbfantasticfiction.org and click on support if you'd like to help keep the series going. Anyway, that's our show. Thanks for listening and see you next month.